Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. And if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to 2 Peter 3. And we will be reading for the first seven verses as we continue on in our study of 2 Peter. Brothers and sisters, let's hear God's powerful, inerrant word. The Apostle Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Pray with me. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word. And we thank you that you have given us your Son, the living Word, who has conquered death and sin, and who gives us new life and a new heart. So we pray, Lord, that you would indeed stir our hearts to a deeper devotion to you as we consider this passage tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and strengthen us as we look to your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if we were to put Peter's letter to music, in chapter 2, what would we hear? Well, we would hear the clashing of cymbals, the blaring of brass, and the pounding of timpani, all to signify a stern warning to false teachers who were infiltrating the church. Peter describes these false teachers in glaring terms, highlighting their character and their motives so as to warn the flock against them to not to be taken in by them. And what were these false teachers like? Well, they were like curs or pigs who returned to their own filth. They preach freedom but they themselves are enslaved to their own passions and doomed for destruction. 
And then we come to chapter 3. And then suddenly, the tune changes. We hear the lofty strains of melodious strings and the sweet sound of flutes as Peter conveys his tender-hearted care for his flock. And he does it in just one word, beloved. A word which exudes his affection for them and which is also coupled with an encouragement. This instance of him calling them beloved is the first of three in which Paul calls them beloved and the other two times are also joined with an encouragement or an exhortation as well. In verse 14, he says, beloved, make every effort. And in verse 17, he warns, beloved, be on your guard. And so we see both in chapter 2, And also in chapter 3, Peter's pastoral heart for his flock. In chapter 2, he shows his affection for the flock by beating back the wolves who are attacking them. And then in chapter 3, he speaks to them in terms of loving endearment to encourage them. And in his pastoral concern, he says in verse 1, that he is writing to them again, sending them a second letter to remind them of the truth that Christ is coming again. Now, this previous letter Peter mentions here in verse 1 is either 1 Peter, or if the recipients of 2 Peter are a different group than the recipients of 1 Peter, then this first letter he wrote to this flock is now lost to us, one of the apostolic letters that did not make it into the New Testament canon. In any case, there is no reason not to assume that in verse 1, Peter is referring to 1 Peter, because both 1 Peter and 2 Peter have this underlying theme of how the Christian community is to live in the light of Christ's second coming. And notice what he says in verse 1. He wants to stir up their minds. He doesn't say he wants to stir up their emotions or their affections, but he appeals to their minds. He wants them to recall what they already know, to unlock their treasure house of knowledge and peer into it to remember what is true what the Scriptures predicted through the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles who conveyed the teaching of Jesus. And what Peter says in verse 1 emphasizes the unity of both the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures. And that unity is Christ as the focal point of all Scripture. He is the center of Scripture And he is the center of all history, both the apex of history and the author and finisher of history. And Peter's emphasis on their minds, on remembering what they had been taught, also highlights for us the importance of knowing Scripture so that we can correctly interpret the times and know how to live as Christ's followers. 
Or to put it another way, the way to a person's heart is through the mind. For it is through, through the renewing of our minds with Scripture that our wills are shaped and our heart affections are brought in line with the parameters of what pleases our Heavenly Father. And this is what Peter is doing here, reminding his beloved flock of the Word and bringing it to bear on the circumstances of their lives so that they know how to live out the truth of the gospel. And what does he remind them of? In verse 2 and 3, that both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus predicted that in the last days, scoffers will come and deny the return of Christ. The last days being the time period between Christ's first arrival and his second coming when he will judge the world and usher in a new heaven and a new earth so that we too then are in the last days as we await his return. So what was going on in the life of the church in Peter's day? Well, right on cue. The scoffers arrive on the scene just as predicted, doing what scoffers do best, scoffing. They laugh, they jeer, and they contemptuously sneer at the idea that Jesus is coming again, saying, where is he? Where is Jesus? And these New Testament scoffers were just like the ones in the Old Testament. The scoffers in Isaiah 28, 14, uh, verses 14 through 22, sound just like the scoffers in Second Peter who deny what is true in the context of the Lord's coming. And in the New Testament, Jude records in verses 17 through 19 that these scoffers were not only pr- predicted, but they were a problem. Jude writes, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, there is a certain irony here, as some commentators point out. And do you see it? These scoffers are themselves evidence of the very thing that they deny. Because it was predicted by Jesus that they would show up. And sure enough, they did. And in showing up, they proved not only the reality of Jesus as the Messiah, but they also proved what they wanted to deny, the very thing they wanted to deny, the certain hope of his coming again. And so their scoffing was all without any substance. There wasn't any teeth to it, what these scoffers were saying, because of all the other evidence which pointed to the reality that Jesus is coming again. After all, Who is writing this letter? But Peter. Peter who saw the risen Christ. Peter who touched the Lord's riven side and saw his nail-pierced hands. Peter who saw the risen Messiah ascend into heaven. 
And in Acts 1, what do we read there? That after Jesus was taken up into heaven and the apostles were standing there absolutely dumbstruck, staring into the sky, what happened? Two angelic beings appeared and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And that was Peter's experience. That was his testimony, which he staked his very life on. And the very truth that he was persecuted and martyred for, the reality which he affirms in 1 Peter 3, that Jesus Christ has gone up into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers all under his authority. Christ is coming again. And the reason that these scoffers denied it wasn't from a lack of evidence. But as Peter says in verse 3, they denied the Lord's second coming because it was an inconvenient truth for them. The truth of Christ's second coming cramped their style. And so their denial of it was a convenient falsehood that provided them cover to live life according to their own sinful, autonomous desires. They live for their selfish, sinful pleasures, which in truth have enslaved them. So they want to wish Jesus away, so that they can feel free to follow their heart's inclinations They're like rowdy school kids who wish for the principal to go on a permanent vacation so that they can have the run of the place without any consequences. And notice in verse 4, what do they say? What is their framework? How do they think? They deny Christ's imminent return by saying, ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, what did these false teachers mean? The phrase, fathers fell asleep. Well, that's a euphemism for their death. And some suggest that these fathers, the scoffers referred to, were the early Christian martyrs. As if the scoffers were saying, well, you know, Stephen and James the Just and James the son of Zebedee, have died, and where's Jesus? Nothing has changed, has it? He hasn't come back. That's one possible way to to interpret who these fathers, the scoffers, were referring to. But it may be better to understand their taunt in this way, as if they said, You know, ever since the fathers, the patriarchs of our faith, have died, everything goes on just the same. Nothing, nothing has changed since creation. Everything has stayed the same since the beginning of time. Now, Peter goes on to confront such a notion, which we will consider. But let's just pause there for a moment to unpack what these false teachers were saying. 
What kind of worldview were they championing by asserting that nothing has changed since the beginning of creation? Well, they were basically saying, come on now. Jesus isn't coming back because the world is a closed system in which God doesn't intervene. And they were promoting this idea not because they could back it up. No, they promoted this idea because it provided them a convenient escape hatch, an excuse for them to live the way they wanted, to live a life apart from God where he can't reach them or judge them. And what better way to get themselves off the hook but to say, you know, nothing really has changed since the beginning of time because the Lord doesn't intervene in his creation. Now, when you think about that, it sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? In some ways, these ancient scoffers sound very modern or even postmodern. After all, how did the deist view the universe? But as a closed system, like a clock that God winds up and then leaves the scene standing back as it winds down. And if such a view were true, what would the world be like? What would be our reality? Life would be repetitious and determined where nothing changes in the endless cycle of the seasons. And God as creator would be remote and impersonal, who leaves us to carry out our days without any concern for us at all. And our existence on this planet would have, therefore, no transcendent meaning at all. Every day would simply be an empty refrain of eat, sleep, rinse, and repeat until you can't rinse or repeat anymore. Now, those are the ramifications of a deist worldview. What does the evolutionist say? Pretty much the same thing, just minus God as the watchmaker. From an evolutionary perspective, the universe came to being through chance and time and is governed by evolutionary processes and natural law. So there is no God, there is no divine intervention. And where does such a worldview leave us? Well, like John Lennon, we can imagine that there's no hell below us, above us only sky. But where does such a worldview leave us? Well, instead of bringing unity where the world will live as one, what would we have? We would find only futility, not unity. A hedonistic worldview where God is absent leads us to where? Well, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us, Life apart from the Lord, life under the sun, life in a closed system where this is all that there is, well, all would be vanity. All would be futility. A chasing after the wind. Why? 
Because he who dies with the most toys, well, he dies. And if all we are is dust in the wind, then when we return to dust, we are blown away by the winds of history, forgotten. We are no more. And so Macbeth is right when he says, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So such a worldview wouldn't bring us to imagine world peace, but would only bring us to despair. And instead of singing imagine, we would sing with Fraulein Schneider, where the sun will rise and the moon will set, and you'll learn how to settle for what you get. It'll all go on whether we're here or not, so who cares? So what? What these scoffers were teaching by denying Christ's second coming was so destructive because it would lead to despair. For if Jesus is not a Savior who returns, then he really isn't much of a Savior, is he? And as one commentator remarks, that in verse 2, Peter is writing in the context of Jesus' return, and notice how he refers to Jesus, not just as Lord, but he refers to Jesus as both Lord and Savior, as if to underscore the truth that Jesus' second coming is as much a part of his plan of salvation as his first coming when he died for our sins. For when he came the first time, we entered into the last days, the last chapter of history, and every day, every day we turn one more page and we get closer to the end. But beloved... The chapter doesn't end until he comes again to complete what he started. For as our Savior, he not only purchased us eternal life with him, but when the Lord returns, he will end this broken world full of sadness and suffering and futility and usher in a new heaven and a new earth where we will have resurrection bodies like his own so that even for those who are with him now in eternity, as wonderful as it is for them to gaze upon his glory and his majesty, even that beautiful reality will be made even more complete when Jesus returns. So the best is yet to be for them as it is for us. Well, moving on, Peter answers the objections of the scoffers by pointing out that their worldview is totally skewed. 
Things have not gone on the same since creation. No, the Lord has intervened in time and history, disrupting the natural order. In verse 5, Paul, Peter points out to God's intervention in time and space, first with the creation of the world by water through the power of his word. And then in verse 6, he reminds them how the Lord used water not to create, but to judge when he intervened in the natural order to bring about a universal deluge that wiped out all humanity except for Noah and his family. And these two verses point out the historicity of both the creation account and the flood, that they are not mythical, but that they were very much realities. And the reality of the past in which the Lord intervened in creation to bring judgment only points to what he will do in future judgment. Which brings us to verse 7, where Peter goes on to say, The Lord who brought the world into being by the power of his word will one day, by the power of his word, destroy it completely in judgment. And this time, not by water, but by fire, with the ultimate global warming. Now, in order to understand these scoffers, Peter had to remind his flock of the Lord's return. And if he had to remind Christians who were only about a decade or so from Christ's ascension that he's coming again, how much more do we need to be reminded of that truth? How does the reality of Christ's return frame our thinking and affect our lives? Is it in the forefront of our minds and our hearts Or have we been lulled into a sleepy daze in these last days? In recent years, I wondered, I have wondered if these are the last days of the last days. As I look across the landscape of our country and our culture, it seems more and more like we've gone down a rabbit hole where up is down and down is up and good is bad and bad is good. For example, consider how the understanding of gender has just recently changed in such a short time. Gender used to be viewed as fixed, determined by biology, but now all of that has changed. Gender is now considered a state of mind. It is fluid and not fixed. And I don't know about you, but do you get the sense that 2022 seems a lot like 1984. For there is no zero tolerance should you go against any of the prevailing groupthink or newspeak. No, if you don't go along with it, you can expect to be doxxed and hounded and canceled. And that is just one example which makes me wonder if these are simply birth pangs Or are we nearing the final pages of history? Well, we don't know when the Lord is coming back. But we do know that he is coming back. And how do we live in these days 
in the light of that reality. Well, maybe you've come here tonight as a seeker of truth, and you are wondering about the truth claims of the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God who came on this earth to live a perfect life so that he could die as a perfect substitute for the judgment that we deserve for all of our sins. That on his death on the cross, he paid the full penalty that I deserved for sinning against my just, perfect creator in thought, word, and deed. And then having died for us, Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day to new life. And when we put our faith in him alone, we enter into a restored relationship with our God. By God's grace alone, he becomes our father and we become his children since he has removed the judgment for our sin through the death of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And how do we know that this is true? We know it's true because Jesus rose from the dead proving that he is the promised Messiah that the Old Testament prophets foretold, who would be the Savior of all of those who trust in him alone for their salvation. And besides the historical reality of Christ's resurrection, we have the reality of changed lives. This week we will have our missions conference when we will be welcoming missionaries from the four corners of the globe to come and share with us what Christ has done in them and through their ministry and the lives of other people. And they stake their very lives on this truth that Jesus is our Savior, that he has risen from the dead, and that he is coming again. So as a truth seeker, this may all be very new to you. And so I would encourage you to examine the claims of Christ. But I would venture to guess that if you're here on a Sunday evening for the Sunday evening service, that you've already embraced the truth of the gospel. And if so, then we are not seekers of the truth But we are sowers of the truth in which we have opportunity to plant the seeds of the gospel in the minds of those around us. So how do we live in the light of Jesus' imminent return? The Lord told us in Mark 13 to be on guard, to watch, and to pray, for you do not know when the time will come. And what did Jesus mean to watch? Well, we know he didn't mean what the apostles were doing when they watched the ascended Christ go into heaven, gazing into the sky, dumbstruck and kind of paralyzed. No, to watch implies action. To watch implies a sense of urgency and being intentional of being a witness for Christ before the sands of time run out because we don't know when they will run out. I think Paul in Ephesians 5 expresses well what it means to watch for the Lord 
when he says in verse 8 and following, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. When there's a forecast for snow, what do we do? We go out to the store with everybody else and grab the last carton of milk and the last few loaves of bread and some eggs. Now, if we prepare for winter storms by caring for our physical needs, how much more should we be concerned about spiritual matters, knowing that Christ is coming again? How much more so should we be prepared for Christ's return by living lives that reflect his character and the reality of his coming? Expressed, expressing that reality in our relationship with him by our words and by the way we live in conformity to his word. How does the reality of Christ's return affect your life? Does it bring you a sense of joy? Does it encourage you? If you've experienced some form of injustice, does the reality of Christ's return offer you comfort? As Dr. Walker preached this morning, we might not find justice in this world, but perfect justice will come on the last day when Jesus returns to judge the world. So, beloved, justice is coming. For those who have caused great harm and have gotten scot off free in this life, well, they will have to stand before a perfect judge, as we will. So how does the truth of Jesus' second coming console you? Perhaps you feel it most deeply when you walk up the hill behind us to that hallowed ground and you stand by the grave of a loved one who died in Christ? Does not the truth of Christ's coming offer you some solace for your soul? Does his imminent return take away some of the sting of death, knowing that this is not the end, but when Jesus comes again, the dead will be raised up to new life, their souls will be, re- be united to resurrected bodies, and we will live in a new world with Christ as our King, where there, will, there will be no more sorrow or sickness or pain or sin or suffering. But all will be perfect and complete. Does not that thought make you want to say, Come, Lord Jesus, Come now. And until that day, what do we do? Well, we watch, and we pray, 
and we live our lives in light of these eternal realities in such a way that others see the truth of them by our love for Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, how we thank you for your word. For on the one hand, it gives us warning, warning of impending judgment. And yet, Lord, it also shows us that you are a loving, merciful God who has loved us with an everlasting love, who did not leave us in our sins, but that you provided a way for us for eternal life through your own death on the cross. And in giving us new life, we have a new relationship with you, and we can call our God in heaven, Abba, Father. And we can pray to you, Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that you are with us, and that you indwell within us, and that you bless us and strengthen us. So we pray, Lord, that as you have bestowed this truth to us, and implanted it in our hearts and minds, that we would live it out in such a way that others would be drawn to you and ask us, how is it that you have joy? How is it that you have comfort in sorrow? How is it that you have consolation in the midst of suffering? And it's because of you, Lord Jesus. So we give you praise and thanks for what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.